Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Humanly podcast. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Emerus Goldsworthy. Welcome along, Emerus. It's great to be on the podcast. Emerus is a musculoskeletal therapist with a special interest in the nervous system, and he's been in clinical practice for over 14 years. Emerus, are you able to give us a little bit of background about what you do and um, your experience in the natural medicine industry for our listeners? Sure, Daniel. Uh, yeah, initially, I um, trained as a musculoskeletal therapist, which was it's essentially focused on orthopedics, uh, joints, muscles, nerves. That's kind of that kind of thing. Uh, treating uh, injuries, different types of pain conditions, and I developed a very real keen interest on the in the nervous system, uh, particularly. Um, on the vagus nerve, the vagal system, and the brain's interaction uh, with the vagal system itself, but also the relationship of the viscera and the gut and the immune system with the vagus nerve. And the reason why I got into that is because I had a lot of uh, patients that I shared with other clinicians that were working on things like depression, anxiety, uh, gut problems, autoimmune diseases and at the time there was a big discussion about the role of the vagus nerve uh, with controlling inflammation uh, normalizing gut health and the like and I'd already been doing a lot of neuromodulation nerve stimulation with other nerves of the brain stem and nerves of the peripheral nervous system and it wasn't much of a leap to start working on the vagus nerve and there at the time there was already a lot of research done on vagus nerve stimulation and I found myself uh, looking at different methods of stimulation, different types of uh, electrical, uh, laser and the like and, and finding some really good success, particularly in the early days, which then going on, went on to being a big part of my practice now. Uh, I predominantly focus on, in my clinical practice, complex pain conditions, which tend to be chronic and or neuropathic, in other words, nerve-related pain. And they also have lots of things like depression, anxiety, uh, neuropsychiatric comorbidities, uh, autoimmunity, gut problems, and uh, these all tend to all tie in together with treatment of the vagus nerve in the brain, which we'll get into, I guess, today. Yeah, before we get into the vagus nerve, you've also done quite a lot of work in the education sector within the natural medicine industry, um, and you've also done some additional study as well. So you've done the musculoskeletal side of things, but you've also done a few other things as well, right? Yeah, so I've got two main streams in my life. I'm a clinician. And I previously, before working as a clinician and going to uni, I was a classical ballet dancer with the Royal New Zealand Ballet Company. 
and uh, my master's degree is in sports coaching uh, in, in focusing on classical ballet training and my bachelor's are in chiropractic and uh, musculoskeletal therapy. I've also done um, other courses in um, supplemental um, nutritional supplementation and nutrition specifically uh, and functional medicine. Um, I was an academic in the Department of Musculoskeletal Therapy and Myotherapy for uh, at Endeavour College of Natural Health for nine years. So I was a senior lecturer there, and uh, my main areas of teaching were in neurophysiology and neuroscience, um, anatomy, and advanced therapeutics. Yeah, I've... Uh had the pleasure of knowing you for many years, Emerus, and I've sort of always looked up to you as the guy who has such great expertise and knowledge in the nervous system. And I have been thinking about, um, you know, all the amazing knowledge that you have, and I'm so excited to have you here today that you can share that uh, with, with our listeners. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Um, in regards to the vagus nerve, uh, many people may not have actually ever heard about the vagus nerve before, and I'm sure that many have, but are you able to give us a bit of a rundown on what the vagus nerve actually is and why it's important for us to have an understanding of what it does? Well, in the traditional uh, anatomy and physiology textbooks, you'll see the vagus nerve is one of the cranial nerves, uh, one of 12, and its focus the, the textbooks tend to focus on it being the nerve that governs the organ systems and uh, particularly having an effect on places like the heart, the lungs, the liver, uh, the intestines, kidneys, uh, for example. And it's talked about as being the main nerve or nerves of the parasympathetic nervous system. So what that basically means is when, when you're learning the nervous system, you learn about your somatic nervous system and your autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is basically your automated, um, non-conscious nervous system, thing you do not actively control. And, uh, and you're not aware of, essentially, that it's going on. Uh, and it's divided into two sections, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And those two nervous systems get kind of dumbed down to the parasympathetic nervous system is all about resting, digestion, um, repair, basically. And sympathetic nervous system is all about the fight or flight response, the stress response. But unfortunately, that oversimplification of it uh, leads to a little bit of incorrect understanding of the function of this nerve. This nerve actually has a big role in the sympathetic nervous system if you want to if you want to divide them uh, a huge role of course in the parasympathetic nervous system and uh, most people focus on digestion and regulation of heart rhythm but it's also incredibly important in things like uh, different throat actions so for example talking uh, singing of course uh, the gag reflex uh, the cough reflex, and even nausea is governed by the vagus nerve. So things that are associated with 
vomiting and elimination of a pathogen that you might consume. So the vagus nerve has its hands in a lot of different places uh, and has huge amount of input into the brain, which is something that we definitely should cover. And because of that input into the brain, it's, it's coming from the brainstem up to the brain, interacting with lots of different areas, particularly areas involved with um, dopamine, serotonin, and noradrenaline. It's also connected to the HPA axis. It's also connected incredibly, uh, highly endowed with the nerves of the vagal system in the limbic system, which is your emotional center. And of course, majority of your organ system, organ systems. So it seems to have hands everywhere. And so, but you would never learn that at uni. So finding out all that about the vagal system, which is more accurate to say than vagus nerve or nerves, uh, you realize that it's pretty important. And a highly functioning vagal system is pivotal to maintaining good health. So in clinical practice, if a client walks into your door, obviously you're going to be paying some close attention to uh, the activity of the vagus nerve. So um, how do you actually assess whether or not someone's vagus nerve or vagal system is actually functioning the way that it should? Well, the traditional ways is are, uh, how much the back of their throat, the uvula, elevates. That's one. Uh, that's not one I actually use anymore. Um, uh, gag reflex, the ability uh, they actually have a present gag reflex or not, although that's problematic because it is a reflex and reflexes can desensitize or become sensitized. So they don't necessarily reflect overall system function. Uh, I tend to find it's a cluster of symptoms and they all tend to go together. So uh, there are two types of vagal dysfunction, what appears to be overactive vagal function and what appears to be underactive vagal function. But the underactive type uh, example would be really, really low heart rate, bradycardia, uh, high gut um, motility uh, as seen in something like diarrhea or constant gurgling noises. Uh, this, is, this is the appearance of overactive. Okay? Uh, uh, vasovagal syncope, sort of overactive vagal response, constant nausea constant um, feeling to vomit, so that nausea. Uh, those are all very much overactive symptoms, but the overactivity tends to be compensatory for underactivity. Normally, uh, that the vagal system has in some ways been impaired, and there's lots of ways it can be impaired. But uh, the other way, which most commonly see, is, is obvious and overt underactivity. So that would be constipation, elevated heart rate, consistent elevated heart rate. Um, arrhythmias are a real key indicator of a vagal problem, uh, other than, of course, heart defects. Uh, you can also have symptoms of the brain. So depression, anxiety can be a symptom of underactive vagus nerve. Uh, Sometimes it's poor detoxification because the poor neurological input to the liver has been impaired, so the liver doesn't adequately detoxify. There is a huge link, um, not link, uh, proven uh, component of the immune system 
called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory reflex. And what that is, is the vagus nerve's control of the immune system's activity, particularly the cytokines and the mast cells. And macrophages through the, the cytokines through the macrophages and other sentinel cells. So how much activity you see in the immune system can indicate a vagal problem. An example might be that they have an overactive immune response. Their cytokine levels are really, really high and there is no good immune reason for it. And uh, tends to be associated with stress. And the reason is, is that the vagus nerve, which we can go on and talk about, controls the degree, the amplitude of the immune response. And it controls it in the lungs, the joints, the skin, and most importantly, the gut. So that's how I'd assess it. I assess it more symptomatically because the system, you can only really assess small components of it. The better to see it as a complete picture and ascertain whether the vagus nerve looks most likely involved or not. My understanding of the vagus nerve was that it's uh, in, an inhibitory nerve. Um, so if it's mm-hmm. overactive, it's it's suppressing activity. And if it's underactive, it's allowing too much um, activity. Is that a bit of an oversimplification yeah. or am I well it's well that's the that's the parasympathetic versus sympathetic concept, right? So it's interesting. So it's better to say it's a regulator or a modulator, right? It does have a, a it suppresses or downregulates heartbeat. So the adrenaline response from the sympathetic nervous system on the heart is going to increase your heart rate as you would with exercise or stress. Once that stressor is gone, the vagus nerve upregulates its activity and you should see a downregulation or a lowering of heart rate. That's the suppression. But it shouldn't go beyond or below normal heart rate. So what it really is doing is normalizing and bringing you back to homeostasis. It's better to look at it that way. Whereas the sympathetic nervous system is the opposite. It completely takes you out of homeostasis into the survival mode. And that's a completely different type of thing where it just increases everything. It suppresses some things, but it increases things to the point where, you know, to help you survive. And the vagus nerve's role predominantly is just to bring you back. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, the only caveat to that would be the gut. And you see a suppression of gut activity with the stress response. That's why a lot of people will find themselves getting indigestion if they're stressed or if they try and exercise on a full stomach, uh, the, the vagus nerve will activate the gut motility and the enzyme release and the acid release and everything you need to digest and absorb food. So in that way, you would see it as an activator, but it doesn't activate it excessively and it only does it within the needs of the gut and that would need the needs based on what food you've eaten. So it will regulate the pH of the stomach that would be determined of how much food that you need to um, break down, particularly protein, and so on. So you mentioned the um, stress response there, and 
when we think about stress, we immediately think about the HPA axis. But again, that's another oversimplification, right? Because there's so much more actually going on, um, you know, outside of the actual hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. There's things like the limbic system and, and that plays a pretty major role as well, right? That's right. So what a lot of people don't understand is that your stress response is predominated by the release of a neurologically derived adrenaline and hormonally derived adrenaline, right? So there's the nervous system's release of adrenaline and it's close um, relative noradrenaline, but I want you to be aware, you're listening to be, listeners to be aware that noradrenaline is not really related to the stress response. It's a, a related to being awake, and that's about like serotonin and dopamine. It's an arousal type neurotransmitter. Adrenaline has a hormonal and neurotransmitter function. So nerves can release adrenaline and they release it onto different organs um, because of their neurological input to those organs. Uh, and the hormonal response is going everywhere. So, And that gets released by the adrenal uh, glands above the kidneys and that that adrenaline as as a lot of people be aware is going to give you different things like um, changes in your pupil size so you get dilated pupils although that one is neurologically released and what a lot of people don't understand is that the HPA axis is cons- constantly being activated throughout the day the daytime and it's actually quite important i do want to get into some of the really protective effects of the hpa axis particularly its release of cortisol and how cortisol really isn't the bad guy and how even adrenaline is not the bad guy but the effects of having too much of it over a long period of time is the is the problem and the things that actually activate these systems the stress response it really comes down to the limbic system and this is where all the action really is. These HPA axes, axis, um, your neurological adrenaline response, these are just tools of the limbic system. You know, they, they, they get focused on, but they're just a means to an end, you know. So your nervous system is using them to uh, create an action or to get a result. So you really should be focusing on the limbic system a lot of the time and its input. So the limbic system has predominantly sensory input that will activate the stress response. The other thing that seems to activate the stress response uh, is the introduction of a toxin to the body and normally pathogens, but I would just focus on toxins. So introduction of a toxin into the body will activate the stress response in the limbic system and therefore the other systems already mentioned. But so does things like smelling something that's potentially harmful. So if you smell smoke uh, and it or gas, it activates, is, as an example, it'll activate your stress response because you think something's wrong. That smell normally indicates a danger. Uh, or you see something that's stressful, you know, uh, something visually traumatic. Um, we're a lot more desensitized these days due to, due to um, television and the internet. But seeing something in front of you like a car crash will activate your stress response. Being physically involved in trauma will activate your stress response. And that is through sensory input. 
the sounds, the smell, the vision, the touch, you know. So, for example, another thing that will activate your stress response is pain. So uh, pain is processed also in the limbic system. And pain is actually what's what I would term or has been termed by other neuroscientists uh, a somatosensory emotion. It's actually an emotion, but the only difference between pain, anger, fear, and all that is that it has a sensory component. You feel it somewhere. And pain really is just emotion. It has a reason, just like fear has a reason, just like anger has a reason, but it's processed almost the same way. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think it's something really physical, but you can have pain with no trauma and you can have pain with no immune response. So there is a lots of uh, pain is a bit of a complex uh, topic. We can go there, but we're, I, we think we're going to focus predominantly on the stress response. And the stress response has lots of different activators. But I think the best thing to consider is a sensory input and a toxin introduction. So those are the main two. I've kind of, um, there, there's lots of things within those, uh, those two, but they're the main things that activate your limbic system and therefore your HPA axis and therefore your adrenaline response at a neurogenic level. And then how does the LHPA limbic hypothalamic um LHPA system tie in to the vagus nerve um, system or the vagus system. Does dysfunction in the LHPA throw out the vagus system or does the vagus system throw out the LHPA axis? What's the relationship there? Okay. So remembering that the um, LHPA axis, really its role is in, in producing and regulating the stress response. The vagus nerve has numerous inputs, neurological inputs, so nerves that are wired into the limbic and HPA axis and the pituitary gland included within that. Uh, it's unknown whether the adrenals have uh, the vagus nerve has direct access to that, but uh, we appear, it appears also pituitary, but predominantly hypothalamus and the limbic system. Because these are the nuclei, these are the nervous system components of that. And what it does there basically is it regulates, right? So it doesn't necessarily turn off the release of cortisol. Because what has been shown is that if you activate the vagus nerve, it will release cortisol. But it also reduces cortisol. So it's regulating the amount needed. It's a modulator. So it's governing the function of this uh, neuroendocrine system. And it's also going into the limbic system and regulating the receptor function there as well. Because it's really important to understand these axes. They have uh, a process called negative feedback looping. And what that is is when a hormone is released at the end organ or the end hormone, uh, sorry, um, gland. It gets released and it circulates in the body and it binds to receptors at the top of that axis. 
so back at the hypothalamus and the limbic system. And when it does that, those systems then send an inhibitory signal to shut it off. A little bit like you put your um, foot to the accelerator, but then you put your foot to the brake to regulate the speed. So it's constantly regulating how much is being released so that it doesn't go overboard. Okay. The vagus nerve appears to regulate that, make it more accurate, more sensitive. So a lot of people with chronic stress don't have that break. They keep releasing cortisol, they keep releasing adrenaline, and then it looks like on a blood test or on a saliva test that they have excess. And many of these people, though, don't have any of the positive effects of those hormones. So what would really be um, giving you alertness and focus, for example, cortisol and adrenaline, actually you're tired and you're, you've got brain fog or you're confused, but you have high cortisol and you have high adrenaline. How's that going to work? Well, the way to look at it is that the only way these hormones work is if the receptors are present. And the one thing that the body does, it's well established particularly uh, in things like leptin and insulin, is that once there's too much of a hormone, the body decides to internalize or remove receptors so that it can't bind and can't cause its effects. It's a self-preservation mechanism, but what it can lead to is the body feeling deficient in them. So a lot of people who are actually high in them are actually deficient in them, but not because they haven't got enough of it, but because they can't bind. It's a little bit like people who uh, can't get glucose into the cell. They've got plenty of glucose and they've got plenty of, um, depending on the situation, they might have plenty of insulin, but the insulin receptors have internalized or the glucose receptors have internalized, depending on the situation, so they can't get uh, energy from it. So it's not accessible. Does that make sense? So there's a huge link there with overproduction and regulation of not going into this state of um, cortisol or adrenaline resistance. So is that the reason why you're um, so interested in the vagus system? Because it's sort of when you're affecting that system, you're working more upstream rather than if you're working on the HPA or the LHPA, you're working further downstream. Is that well, that's the right. correct yeah. understanding. And that's why, well, you hear a lot of terms like adrenal fatigue, you know, and uh, often very poorly correlated with any blood tests. Uh, I think it's better to say uh, vagal fatigue or vagal, vagus nerve dysfunction. Um, even people who don't even have that term or they're just highly wired, uh, they're highly stressed, they can't handle stress very well. Um, the people who can't handle stress very well, I tend to say those are the ones that haven't got good cortisol responses because the way that I would look at cortisol-adrenaline relationship is that adrenaline gives you the drive, cortisol gives you the protection, the protective effects. So they work synergistically, but it's kind of like with some herbs, um, there's the active ingredient, but there's all these synergistic ingredients that help to negate side effects from the active ingredient, if that makes sense. So, but the vagus nerve, if you work on activating it, creating a normalized function, you should see gradual resolution of these problems. But there are caveats to that, and 
we can talk about how other things such as nutrition and lifestyle factors really do negate any positive effects from treatment of the directly tra- direct treatment of the vagus nerve. So when we're looking at trying to affect the vagus system, um, is it possible that the common herbs and nutrients that we think are actually working on the LHPA or HPA axis are actually working on the vagus nerve? Um, is that a possibility or do we just not know or have enough well, research to tell yet? Well, I think it's possible that it's working in the limbic system. Uh, it's possible that they are working outside of the vagus nerve because um, they're affecting that system in some way. A lot of things you don't really understand how they work. They seem to work. There there was a study done in regards to L-theanine and its effect on down-regulating the the overactivity of the amygdala. And the amygdala is really the cornerstone of the stress response, you know, uh, if without amygdala activation, you're really not going to get a fear response. You're not going to get that fight or flight response that you see when you know a wild animal's running out towards you or you're about to have an accident. Uh, so the things like your theanine appear to directly work on the limbic system. Whether it works on the vagus nerve is, is unknown, but what I would say that Improving general nerve function and brain function, which is normally just nerve function anyway because the brain is made up of nerves, that is a good focus to have. So instead of focusing predominantly on de-stressing through herbs or other nutraceuticals, it may be better to consider on top of that, at least with that, how might I be able to serve the function, the structure and function of the nerves of the brain? And, and what are that, some, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, well, keeping it simple for a second, you know, so what, is a, what does a nerve need? Well, a nerve needs blood. A nerve needs oxygen from that. It needs food, whether it be, you know, ketones or glucose. Uh, it needs adequate structural elements. Uh, So that includes fatty acids and proteins. Uh, It needs important, it's really important, particularly things like B6 and B12 with the regulation of the myelin, which is the outer sheath, regulation of the production of the myelin. Uh, It also needs to activate. So you've got to use nerves, right, for them to be good and working well. Nervous system function is pretty much determined by activation. It causes an upregulation of genes, which leads to increased proteins, receptor sites, and it gets better at activating as a result. So that's why exercise is so popular, because it's one of the best ways of increasing nervous system and brain function, because it just upregulates everything. Uh, These nutrition of the nerve, activation of the nerve, Oxygen is the other one. Now, a lot of people um, possibly don't have enough oxygen in their blood. And you'll see that through um, checking their O2 levels. Uh, and that might be, you know, a good example are asthmatics or people with emphysema, um, some kind of respiratory disease, sometimes heart problems. And you'll see that their oxygen levels are lower than ideal. 
and that can severely affect the nerve function. The other, of course, thing is toxins negatively affect nerves quite a lot because a lot of toxins are lipophilic and they bind to fat and negatively affect the function of nerves. Um, there's also a role to play uh, with pharmaceuticals, which we know that some will actually damage nerves, like some chemotherapies, uh, but some will actually really negate the function of the vagus nerve because they either upregulate antagonist systems. So a good example of that would be things like asthma drugs that um, are focusing on adrenaline agonists. Uh, these tend to be suppressing vagal function because they activate the sympathetic nervous system. So those, all the in and vagus nerve stimulation has been shown in numerous uh, randomized controlled trials to reduce the symptoms of asthma. So at the same time, yeah, okay, so asthma drugs are really good to suppress symptoms, but overall they're not really curing whereas it appears that vagus nerve stimulation is in its early days, but it might eventually be a cure for asthma, or at least a really good controller of asthma. At this stage, it's unclear, but they're very promising studies. So a lot of drugs actually negate the effects, of the positive effects of nerve function. The other thing that I was going to say about nerve function is what is protective of nerve function. And what's really interesting, and a lot of people don't know, is that cortisol... Uh, two things, cortisol and testosterone are both incredibly important in maintaining nerve function. If you have low cortisol or cortisol resistance, you have almost no protection against nerve damage. So if an, if, let's, let's give you a scenario. person's a little bit B12 deficient. They might be B6 deficient. They also don't have a lot of fatty acids in their diet. Maybe they don't have a good protein levels in their diet. This is, this is starting to look like a perfect storm. They're also very stressed and their cortisol levels have been high for a long time, but at this point they're getting cortisol resistance. So the receptors for cortisol have been internalized, so the effects of cortisol are negated. That includes its protective effects of nerves. Then you start to see mild demyelination of nerves across the whole nervous system, but in particular areas um, that have less blood flow. Okay, it doesn't have to be that, and it can be in areas that you don't even realize you have reduced nerve function, and a lot of those symptoms are weakness um, and even numbness. But it can actually just be reduced brain function. You know that it can be in the brain, it, and it can be random spots, just like a lot of neurological conditions can just be random locations that, and different for every person. And testosterone has been shown though, if you have too low testosterone you have very inadequate repair of nerves and protection of nerves. Okay, so from what you've said there, I've got a two-part question. You mentioned that cortisol resistance can negatively impact the health and functioning of nerves. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we actually modify that process? And uh, I guess the second part to the question is, you mentioned vagus nerve stimulation. Uh, can you explain what that is and are we able to stimulate the vagus nerve to have an impact on um, resensitizing these receptors to cortisol? Mm. Okay. You might have to ask the second question in a moment, but 
The first question, I think we can answer this pretty well. I might be answering both. <laughs> we'll see. Just um, ask me it again if I haven't answered it. Getting the receptors back for cortisol is really the aim, right? The way to know if something does do that is by the level of cortisol in the blood over a day or two, right? It's not how it looks in an hour after treatment of any kind of treatment, whether it be a something you take orally or something you physically do or something like a vagus nerve stimulation session. It's not really about how the cortisol levels are that day. It's about how they are every day in the weeks to follow. So have you seen a downwards trend? If you see a downwards trend in cortisol levels, so within normal limits, from elevated, what you will see then, what, you, what that means is, is that the body is starting to turn off the tap. The receptors uh, are being bound, that cortisol is binding to receptors, activating that negative feedback loop, and is all that cortisol is being um, eliminated by the body and none's being, nor, not more is being produced than unnecessary. So that's, that's the key indicator. So vagus nerve stimulation is known to do that. It's been seen in at least three studies to lower the serum or the blood levels of cortisol. And that's consistent over weeks after a bout of treatment. And also adrenaline. And the other interesting thing is to consider also is how much is released when you exercise, for example. So your stress hormone response is reduced, but the effects of them is increased. That's a classic example of receptor sensitivity increase. So as your receptors increase, your sensitivity to the hormone or the neurotransmitter increases because you don't need as much of it to produce the effect. And so therefore your, your efficiency, hormonal efficiency or receptor efficiency is increased. So the key indicator has been in these studies that adrenaline is reduced overall, but we're still within normal limits from high to normal. And so is cortisol. But that doesn't mean you're trying to reduce cortisol. You're just trying to increase the uh, sensitivity of it. And the net effect of that would be reduced serum levels. Yeah, so can I just um, clarify there? So it's not that uh, if you ha if you have high levels of cortisol and then you start to implement various strategies to sensitize these receptors again, um, it's not the f when you see the cortisol levels dropping, it's not the fact that the body's producing less cortisol, it's just that it's being bound to these receptors and utilized. The body's still able to mm. produce the same amount of cortisol. Is that right? That's basically it. The way I would another analogy would be that you have all this food in front of you, right? You're hungry. You have all this food in front of you. And you eat a little bit of it, but you've got lots of food. And so the clinician sees, oh, you've got lots of food, you should be fine. You should shouldn't be hung you should be shouldn't be hungry. You've eaten all this food. But you haven't eaten it. In this analogy, it's the receptors, is the they're not consuming the cortisol, right? But then the other situation is that you have a third of that, but you've eaten all of it, so you're full. 
Does that make sense? So the effects of cortisol are relative to how much it binds to receptors. How much cortisol you have in your blood is important, but doesn't indicate the function of cortisol. Normal, your symptoms, how you feel, and how much cortisol you have, you correlate those two together, you should see how much functioning cortisol you have or functioning cortisol system you have. So we definitely need those receptors. Tell me if I've missed something here from what you've asked, but we definitely need those receptors to be, um, those, those cortisol molecules to be binding to the receptors so we get the positive effects of cortisol. And then we need to see that they get degraded and eliminated. But, we, but the levels of cortisol, okay, will tend to trend downwards as receptor sites get more um, present, become more present. Yeah, so essentially what happens if it's not binding to the receptor and being utilized, there's no um, feedback Correct. and the bodies, they're not getting the message to say, hey, um, you know, you don't have to produce as much cortisol now, but when it doesn't get that response, it just goes, oh, I'm not getting this feedback. I'm going to continue producing cortisol Exactly. and we get this buildup of cortisol in the system. But as soon as we can activate those receptors, They'll be the cortisol will be used up by the cell, and then you'll get that feedback response, and the body can downregulate the production of cortisol. That's exactly right. So some of those things that do that, it's common sense here. We know what uh, anyone could guess what I'm about to say. So one of the key things it does that is exercise. Uh, too high exercise, too too intense may be problematic, but moderate intensity exercise on a daily basis will increase. Your receptor sites. Uh, things like mindfulness and meditation, yoga, things with breathing, you know, anything that's relaxing tends to do it. Okay. But exercise is definitely a, a very important, important one out of all of them. It seems very powerful at reducing um, the cortisol levels overall. And I talked about vagus nerve stimulation, of course, that's been shown in numerous studies as well. Yeah, you've mentioned vagus nerve stimulation a couple of times, um, and it is something that I'm familiar with. But for those uh, people that are listening who may not be familiar with vagus nerve stimulation, can you walk us through what that actually is and how do we actually stimulate the vagus nerve? Sure. So there are numerous ways of doing it. Uh, there are lots of uh, sort of at-home things you can do, whether it be gargling, uh, singing, um, eliciting the gag reflex over and over again. They're not very pleasant things to do, the, that one particularly. Uh, but they're clinically, because you don't tend to use them clinically as much, clinically you use a type called electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve. And there are two main types. One's, one's called transcutaneous auricular or ear stimulation because the vagus syst vagal system has inputs in the ear or sensory feedback from the ear skin. And you can use those sites to stimulate the nerve pathways. There's also an implantable device which is being used as well. But, of course, anything implantable can have its side effects as well. 
And I personally use the transcutaneous auricular type stimulation with uh, ear type um, ear electrode um, ear electrodes that are placed on the ear through using a tens machine. So the tens is the basic electrical device that we use, and that's what's being used in all the different trials and studies. Why does it have to be in the ear? Why can't we place it somewhere else on the body and get a similar effect? So the vagus nerve uh, supplies the skin of the ear. Uh, there are only a couple of other areas that are like that. And why the skin matters is that the sensory receptors are there. The sensory receptors have a direct pathway to a part of the vagal system called the solitary nucleus. The solitary nucleus is, is the point of reference for or the, the, the control center. And you want direct access to it, electrical stimulation of it to upregulate its activity, to get these outputs to the areas of the brain, the HPA, the gut, the heart, etc. You don't want to be wasting time with pathways of nerves because those are bidirectional pathways that don't as easily, when you electrically stimulate, say, an axon, which is a pathway, it's kind of like a road rather than the end destination, they don't result in upregulation as easily. Upregulation basically means that the cells of that nerve, their gene, the gene expression upregulates and increases its uh, production of proteins or receptor sites that leads to it being more sensitive or more efficient or more active. Basically just increases its um, power output, its ability to do things because it's got more receptor sites. Okay? The skin of the ear is a sensory input, so it has direct access. So therefore, it's more likely to cause a change in that system. The other area that, of the, that you could do, could use is the back of the throat, but that has its problems because you're stimulating electrically the back of the throat. And the other area um, might be in the gut, but you're not going to be able to access that because it's internal. So the, the implanted device does it through the neck on an axon. And it's better to stimulate electrically end organ sensory receptors than axons because axons are bidirectional, they're unidirectional. And although it will have an effect on the solitary nucleus, it's a bit of a price to pay to have to have an implanted device, but also it's not better. And there is evidence to suggest that the ear stimulation is actually a higher effect. So the ear is the only efferent um, nerve afferent. pathway? Afferent. Afferent. Yeah. Afferent, pathway? afferent nerve pathway. So the efferent the output, the motor output. Uh, an example would be the release of a hormone or the, um, say, the motor function of the organ systems or might be the throat. So activation of the gag reflex would be an efferent nerve. And afferent uh, is the sensory. So the, these are all afferent nerves from the ear. Uh, the area of the conca, which is the internal part of the ear. Yeah, so those are those that unidirectional pathway uh, is really key to activate. So interesting that you say that because when you look at Chinese medicine, uh, they've known for a long time that by stimulating various parts of the ear, you can cause uh, you know systemic effects within the body. So we're now actually able to show scientifically the reasons why that might work. 
Look, I, I think it's incredible what they were using ear acupuncture for, uh, how many of those particular points correlate and what they're using it for correlate with what we're using vagus nerve stimulation for. It's very interesting. And uh, I think it's worth cross-referencing the two. You know, I'm not an acupuncturist and I don't purport to use acupuncture or, or Chinese medicine, but I'm using the science of vagal stimulation. But there is a huge crossover and uh, there's even there's, there's plenty of uh, potential use of needles in the ear as a, as a way of treating the vagus nerve as well. I do not doubt that. You mentioned before another way that we can stimulate the vagus nerve is through the gut. So would it be then possible to stimulate these points in the conquer of the ear and elicit a response within the gut? So could we potentially use it for things like dysbiosis or um, irritable bowel syndrome? So studies have shown that there's an increase in enzymatic release, enzyme release, so proteases, lipases, etc., uh, an increase in hydrochloric acid release uh, post-vagal stimulation. Now, it's not a direct pathway. So by stimulating the ear, you don't get a direct link to the gut. You've got to go via a bunch of different nerve pathways, and it's a bit of a process to get there. But the way to look at it is that if your need at the time is to release that enzyme, and you're, you need an, a vagal system that is efficient and activates when you need it adequately, and you don't have adequate levels uh, of enzyme release prior to this, what you should see from vagal stimulation is that those levels increase to what you should have. So it's a needs-based thing. So you would need to test it after eating or while you're eating as a way of knowing because that's that's really going to stimulate the response. But we're sensitizing the system. We're making it more function, higher functioning. And being aware that what activates the vagus nerve in your gut and in your oral cavity are sensory receptors, pressure receptors in the esophagus, uh, taste receptors. Part of the taste receptors are vagal. Uh, and that makes sense. And you've also got the smell of food, although smell sensory receptors in the nose are not vagal, they have deep connection to the, into the vagal system. So you have this huge correlation between sensory input of food, whether it be the taste, the pressure of it going down the throat, the chewing action, the, the sensation of, of all of that, that's going to activate the release of these, these uh, enzymes and acid. Uh, but the ability for it to do that is based on how sensitive it is to those inputs whether it be smell, taste, and so on, and those increase as you get vagal stimulation because the solitary nucleus, which is what we're activating, becomes more sensitive as you stimulate it more with the stimulation. And so all those inputs have a bigger effect in the gut. So the the input creates a bigger output. Does that make sense? So we could almost say that rather than there being a gut-to-brain effect. It's more of a top-down effect where it's brain-to-gut. Would, would that be a fair statement? It is a bi-directional pathway. So what goes on in the gut is talked about in the brain via the vagus nerve, um, from the vagus nerve. And what goes on in the brain is known in the gut via the vagus nerve. 
but hierarchy of importance would say that the brain function supersedes the gut. You know, if you if you have a traumatic brain injury, almost immediately you get gut dysbiosis and you get um, disorganized and potentially lower motility. So that's brain. That means your brain function has been lost because of the traumatic brain injury and the gut now has been impaired by that predominantly because the vagal system has been impaired as well. And so treating the brain is really important. Right, overall brain function, we talked about oxygen levels, um, blood glucose in the level, like glucose levels in the brain, ketone levels in the brain, whatever it might be, nutrition of brain nerve cells. These all are important at a structural and functional level. But so is the other neurotransmitters, which we can talk about. So good levels of neurotransmitters leads to better functioning um, brain signaling. Uh, so glutamate and GABA can do a better job, you know, because glutamate and GABA predominantly are the on and off signals in the brain, you know. So you need those really, those are particular kinds of neurotransmitters. The neuromodulators are the ones that determine how higher functioning they are, those other how high are functioning the glutamate and GABA systems are going to be. They're things like dopamine, noradrenaline, and serotonin. They're the main three. And the vagus nerve is highly associated with the regulation of those nervous, those um, serotonergic, noradrenergic, and dopaminergic neurons. And studies have shown overt changes in dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, after vagal stimulation. So it's a very important part of treating gut problems is treating brain problems, those three neurotransmitters particularly, uh, but also through the vagal system, not just at a neurotransmitter level. So if someone came into your clinic uh, with dysbiosis, for example, would you be using something like vagus nerve stimulation or are there other things that you Almost would certainly. go to for you would yeah yeah but you also got to look at their brain function so i don't like monotherapy i'm not a huge fan of monotherapy sure other uh, adjunctive therapies i'd normally recommend would be things like transcranial light therapy so led light infrared light applied to different parts of the brain uh, to upregulate uh, the mitochondrial function to produce more energy but also to increase blood flow in those areas exercise needs to be input and also just key nutrients you know number one nutrients water so you may got to make sure they're not dehydrated uh, you got to make sure they're drinking clean water electrolytes you need to make sure all nervous system function is determined by electrolytes so electrolyte levels need to be maintained and normalized through electrolyte drinks uh, as long as they're appropriate for that person uh, I talked about fatty acids, choline. Uh, choline is a key component of acetylcholine. So choline must be present in the diet for good acetylcholine responses. And acetylcholine is the main neurotransmitter of the vagus nerve. So is noradrenaline and dopamine. So tyrosine is big for those. Uh, 
there's a bunch of of um, cofactors with those. So you, you could rattle off a whole, whole list of vitamins and minerals. Um, B vitamins, of course, are a big part of that. And we know that that just purely at a myelin sheath level, B vitamins are important. Uh, additional things to consider is also just brain training. You know, there's lots of brain training apps or learning a new language. You'd be surprised how often that improves gut function. It's very interesting. But gut function is also determined on the stress response and lifestyle factors. So if someone's working 15 hours a day in their job at a computer screen, they're highly stressed, uh, this is a huge factor that needs to be addressed and vagus nerve stimulation is not going to remediate that. So lifestyle has a huge role to play. Another thing is loneliness, actually. I, I just thought of this. That's what, there is a reason why people say the people with family connections, friends and family that are consistently around them tend to do better and it's associated with a longer lifespan. Well, living alone, not having friends, not having family, not having loved ones around does tell your brain that you are potentially in trouble. You may not consciously think that, but, you know, Human beings lived in tribes and that was protective for us against, say, an attacker, like a, a wild animal or another tribe, and power in numbers. So our brain, when we're not around others consistently, our brain seems to believe that we're actually in danger. And it can just consistently activate your stress response, even if you're not doing stressful things. So it is a key factor in the recovery of someone is that they have a support network. Uh, Just on that point, Emrys, it's it's interesting that you that you mention uh, loneliness because there's some pretty good research that shows it's one of the leading contributing factors to uh, mortality in older people. So if they are lonely or they don't have like social groups, for example, that is one thing that we know can negatively impact people's health and you know, significantly increase their risk of uh, all-cause mortality. Mm. I'm not surprised. I've seen it in my patients. I've seen it um, with you know, particularly older folk who have been isolated uh, during the coronavirus. Uh, their mortality appears to increase. You know, so we think we're protecting people. In reality, we're actually potentially making them a bit more harmful for them. Uh, and having a chronic stress response leading to cortisol resistance, you know, we're the immune system has become very poor functioning when you have chronic stress. Cortisol is anti-inflammatory in its nature in the body. That's as part of its protective effect is to regulate inflammation and not let it go overboard. And that's part of the reason why the vagus nerve helps reduce inflammation um, by releasing cortisol. It's one of the mechanisms. But if your cortisol is consistently released, the, the effects of that are lost and your immune system goes out of control. So people who have that cortisol resistance, their immune system is now overactive. And so you get those cytokine storms. That's what kills people in a lot of these pneumonia states. The cytokine 
overactivity and that's why they take steroids and so on. But it's, it's a real problem. And I think that if you were to regulate cortisol, more specifically regulate cortisol by uh, reducing the resistance to cortisol, then we'd get to the bottom of the problem. You know, what I find really interesting about your approach is if you were to speak to many integrative medicine practitioners, natural therapists about dysbiosis, they'd immediately go to, let's do a um, CDSA, let's see what bacteria is present and what's not, what's out of balance, and let's try and modify it with herbs or probiotics. And you haven't even mentioned that. You're, you've been very um, sort of focused around that nervous system regulation. And I think that's a really cool approach. Um, and many practitioners don't really consider that. And I think we're so, – sorry, go ahead. No, go on. I was just going to say I think we might be barking up the wrong tree, um, so to speak, in regards to trying to correct dysbiosis um, because you know throwing all the antimicrobial herbs and substances and probiotics at the gut, it's a Band-Aid approach. We're not treating the true underlying cause. Yes, well, I mean, we know a lot of people who just have dysbiosis, they're highly strung. They've got chronic stress trauma, things like that tends to be the correlation, the main factor. Um, some people might say poor diet, but I don't think it's as a, as a bigger contributing factor. I think that poor diet can, or good diet, an appropriate diet, may alter your, your gut microbiome. I'm not doubting that, and I don't deny that. I just don't think that the way we look at the microbiome is quite right. I think the best way to look at the microbiome and I've, I've kind of changed my view based on vagus nerve studies, is that you've got to look at it as being really you. Microbiome is you. It's not separate from you. We've talked about this in the past, uh, whether it be, you know, the fungal, uh, fungal fungi in the gut, whether it be bacteria or parasites, potentially even parasites. These are actually more you than they are separate to you. And the better, better way to look at them is that they are protective. And the reasons why microbiome dysbiosis occurs is based on the needs of your system. So you get dysbiosis because what we term it that, maybe it's not really that at all, but based on that versus the norm uh, or perceived healthy state gut bacteria, uh, I think it's more they're just innocent bystanders at the scene of the crime. These are these bacteria, so-called pathogenic bacteria, look like they're actually potentially more of a defense system against, say, toxin invasion rather than pathogenic invasion. I think toxins are the enemy, not, not pathogens, not microbes. Microbes are actually there doing their bit to get you out of trouble. And they may look bad, because you don't feel good and they become associated with you not feeling good in studies. Yeah. So whether it be you know, citrobacter, for example, that doesn't mean that just because you get diarrhea when there's citrobacter present, that doesn't mean citrobacter is bad. You know, diarrhea is a mechanism of elimination and it's probably better to look at it as if your gut microbiome needs to eliminate something, it will become more pathogenic. 
it'll appear pathogenic because it's better at eliminating whatever is in, you know, toxin might be if it's in that state. It's better at doing its job in that state. So therefore it changes to that state and you can do that at the drop of a hat. It doesn't require very long in order to change the profile of the microbiome, the DNA microbiome profile. So the other really interesting thing is that as vagal function improves, so does gut microbiome. And it goes towards more of a healthy status, you would call it. And there's been microbiome studies done with vagal stimulation where the vagus nerve stimulation over time normalizes gut flora towards uh, beneficial bacteria. Is that actually directly changing it or are the, the needs of the, of the microbiome changing because the vagus nerve is treating the root cause? It's hard to say, but it looks to be that case. So yeah, I think right. antimicrobials might be doing a good job and they might be doing something else. They might be more anti, you know, detoxifying potentially. I think you you might be on the right path there and you know we've had discussions in the past around this and we we seem to look at the microbiome as something that's separate to us and we seem mm. to think it's something that goes haywire when we have these bacteria introduced from a foreign um, substance or from our environment but in fact it might be that these bacteria um, are actually us as you said mm. they aren't a foreign thing and uh, they're not being introduced they're actually just adapting to the environment they're adapting to the things that we're putting into our mouth into our body so you know this might be one reason why when you have a client come in and, and you run a, a cdsa or a gut microbiome profile you can see these so-called pathogenic bacteria present in the gut and the person's completely asymptomatic. And I know that you've actually had a few instances of that in, in your clinic where you've seen these, you know, really serious or so-called serious um, pathogenic bacteria and the person's had absolutely no gut symptoms. Mm. Yes. Um, I'll often have um, people who just, just want to check their gut health because it's part of their overall health um, management. They just want to feel, make sure they can feel even better. And really, they would be cl considered clinically asymptomatic. And they can have numerous types of pathogenic bacteria. Uh, and you would be to the point where you would be very surprised how they're not symptomatic. Uh, and I do really wonder, are these there for a reason? You know, that's, I really do believe that the body is innately intelligent in everything that it does. We get in the way of that most of the time. Our environment gets in the way. You know, we live in a very toxic environment. It, our body's got a hard job to do. It's constantly eliminating toxins that are much more rampant now than they ever have been. And we have a more sterile environment now, which potentially we know is linked to autoimmunity uh, and asthma and allergies and things like that. Looks like our our body is really trying to adapt to this new changing world. So things don't always go well, uh, and I think that the the body is really trying to do its best with the means that it has, and we don't really understand what it's trying to do. 
because we a lot of medicine just thinks the body is doing things wrong all the time and it's all about correcting the body rather than assisting the body yeah it's so true and this is one of the reasons why i think we might not really understand precisely how some of these antimicrobial herbs are working we assume that we're giving things like oregano oil and thyme oil and um, colloidal silver because they're uh, antimicrobial but in fact and you mentioned this earlier before they might actually be a detoxifying agent and Mm. you know we see that the gut um, is in dysbiosis because it's trying so hard to maintain homeostasis in an environment where it is being poisoned constantly and you know some of the listeners might be like you know what are you talking about where where are these poisons coming from well you know just uh, i had professor mark cohen on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the quality of water mm. and you know tap water's got um antibiotics in it so if you're consistently drinking unfiltered tap water and you're getting this low-grade exposure to antibiotics all of a sudden the the um the system is going well we're going to have to adapt the best that we can and given the circumstances and then you see these so-called pathogenic bacteria or this dysbiosis occurring and we go well that's the culprit let's go after this innocent bystander and let's fix the problem and we provide these herbs and, and supplements we think that they're eradicating the bacteria but in fact what they're doing is they're changing the internal environment and they're causing detoxification processes. Mm. Would you agree with that line of thinking? or are, I think you... that's the main cause. I think that uh, I've talked about, you know, um, just another down to two things. Most disease is pretty much going to be, other than trauma, most disease is going to be a nutrient deficiency or a toxicity issue which leads to nutrients not being able to bind because toxins and heavy metals are blocking receptor sites other than the fact that they are toxins. So it's the deficiencies and toxicities. This is really what's going on. The hard thing is analyzing it. You know, our blood tests for toxicity are too specific. You can't get a general view of how much toxicity is going on. There are some tests, but, uh, You've got to look very broadly. And when I go back to the vagus nerve, well, the vagus nerve, if it's impaired by the means we've talked about, chronic stress is a good one, uh, poor functioning nervous system in general, uh, due to poor inputs, you know, poor levels of activity, levels of stress management, you know, uh, nutrient deficiency, things like that. It just means that our liver doesn't have that adequate neurological input, right? And toxin recognition. Well, people don't realize that the vagus nerve is the toxin recognizer. The immune system in the gut, in the liver, they're all activating upon the... um, when they sense a toxin. If you don't activate, you don't detoxify. You don't actually activate that process. So you need the neurological systems really working well to get that appropriate detoxification. 
not to mention you could go on a, for hours about just, just detoxification itself in the liver. Uh, but I think we need to consider all of our elimination pathways, the function of all of them, uh, adequate water levels just in general, and just making sure that everything is clean. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, you know, pesticide-free, organic food, um, doing as much as we can to clean the air in our home with, with air purification, uh, drinking clean water, those are the basics. We've got to start there. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Emerus. And, you know, just, I mean, we could sit here for hours and sometimes our conversations, um, we do sit around for hours pondering these things. But, you know, just, just to sort of cap off on this point around toxins, I was looking at some uh, stuff on YouTube the other day and there's a scientist over in Sweden Jorgen, uh, Jorgen Magna is his name, and he did some studies around 2015 looking at the levels of pesticides in people's urine who were eating an, in a, a non-organic diet. And he found that there were pretty high levels of some of these uh, pesticides and persistent organic uh-huh. pollutants in people's urine. And then as soon as they went to an organic diet within a week or two they actually had negligible amounts of these things in their urine so Uh you know these are other areas where toxins are coming into the system Um, and you mentioned nutrient deficiencies so i wrote a a blog uh, on this months ago about vitamin a and you know are we all vitamin a deficient is there chronic rampant vitamin a deficiency in australia um you know one thing that actually causes uh, vegetables to have negligible amounts of beta carotene in them is their exposure to fungicides and herbicides. Mm. So these foods that we're eating, we're assuming we're getting the nutrients from them, but they're actually nutrient depleted and full of these toxins. Empty food. Empty food. Yeah, and that's, that's I think, why I think a lot of people understand that they think, well, I think there's a lot of negative press about organic food and this them sort of saying that it's not as nutrient, it's the same nutrient density. That's quite inaccurate because it doesn't look at the complete picture, the role of organophosphates, and particularly on the gut microbiome, we haven't gone to that, but also just how how much toxicity it causes. I think that alone just, it doesn't even have to be necessarily about the deficiency levels about from food or a lack of nutrients. The consumption of the toxins is enough of a problem, you know? Uh, but look, we are dealing with a huge problem of depletion. We're just not about, there, there is just no way we're adequately getting all the nutrients we need from even a really good diet. And this is where I think we're going wrong with the RDIs because the RDIs are set to say, this is the amount of a particular nutrient you need, but it's based on the assumption that you're living in a perfectly clean environment, that you're not stressed you're not working two jobs, uh, you're not eating rubbish, you're not being exposed to pollution in the air, all of which we know uh, has an impact on our body's requirements for these nutrients. So it, it may even be that the RDIs for a lot of these nutrients are actually far greater than, than what we currently uh, understand. I definitely think that that, that is definitely the case, uh, particularly um, antioxidant 
vitamins, uh, considering the effects of free radicals on our body and the likelihood that free radical production is greatly increasing, not just from radiation, other, but just toxicity in general. You know, uh, vitamin C consumption. I mean, I've looked at how much vitamin C, that, how much food you would need to get adequate vitamin C of just RDI. Uh, it's quite difficult. You know, most, I mean, it's not extremely difficult, but it's difficult to see people doing it every day. And the reality is they probably need far more to be healthy, to be well, not just to be alive. So the, the list could go on. We could talk about zinc. We could talk about magnesium. We could talk about uh, even the trace elements. These are definitely a problem. They're definitely a problem, Just not, not just because of soil depletion, but just because our needs are higher. It's it's so true. Um, I've always pondered if you look at the RDI for vitamin C, according to the nutrient reference values in Australia, they're about forty five milligrams per day. But if you start digging around and you have a look at the RDIs for various other countries, if you look at the United States, for example, the RDI there for a adult male is ninety milligrams. It's double. Yeah. Mm. what we have here in Australia. And then if you're a smoker, um, they're suggesting that you need 35 milligrams a day extra to deal with that oxidative stress that's being caused from smoking. And, you know, we know if people live in um, built-up areas and they're inhaling these um, toxins and carbon monoxide in the air, that that can be consider- uh, considered, um, you know, almost equivalent to smoking a certain amount of cigarettes per day. So the vitamin C requirement goes up even further. And then you look at places like um, Japan. The last time I had a look, I think it was around about 120 or 150 milligrams per day of of vitamin C as a requirement. So we have to ask ourselves, why are we still at 45 milligrams? Well, that's right. I think we need to be getting into the grams area, really, to be adequate, to be healthy. Um, we're just, you know, you look at the, the requirements, you know, just not just vitamin C, I think the vitamin A and the vitamin C are huge. You've already mentioned those. We're not getting any of these appropriate things, the appropriate levels, and it doesn't necessarily cause a problem in a day or two. It's that chronic depletion. Over time, our bodies just degrade. They, they get we get set up for autoimmunity. We get set up for disease. We get set up for sickness, and we wonder what went wrong. Uh, it's kind of hard. We look for things that immediately affect us, not things that chronically affect us. And that's really where the focus needs to lie. Those those things that negatively affect us at a chronic level. Yeah, I think we do need to look at that. And you mentioned earlier as well about things that can impact the vagus nerve or the vagus system um, being nutrient deficiency. So while we think we're getting all these nutrients in our diet, we may actually not be. And it could be driving this uh, you know, vagus system dysfunction that we're observing. It's interesting. I will mention there was a study done on osteoarthritis nutrition 
the correlation between deficiencies and the development and maintenance of it. And in the study, they found that there was a huge correlation. We'll talk about the correlation between deficiencies in all the fat soluble vitamins and the development of osteoarthritis. Uh, we know that at the very core of it, vitamin D regulates the genes that repair um, cartilage. So vitamin D alone is important, but the others are, of course, involved. And this also found that if you normalised those levels, consuming them through supplementation or through diet, the osteoarthritis would resolve or at least improve. So a lot of people, a lot of these people get told you've got osteoarthritis, that's that's it, that's how it is, it's not going to change. But really, it's just a failure of cartilage to repair. And that's just an example. Okay. So you could put that with osteoporosis, you could put that with uh, arteriosclerosis, anything to do with chronic disease, even even Alzheimer's disease, you could show some correlation between certain deficiencies in Alzheimer's. So all of the main ca causes of death are highly linked to deficiency over long periods of time. And yes, we have this, there are genetic factors that are involved in all these things. There are other factors involved. Toxicity as well. Uh, lifestyle factors, of course. I think you could negate a large proportion if everyone had adequate, I wouldn't say RDI, but adequate levels if we knew really what they were of these nutrients. And so we went just to correlate it back with stress, making sure that their stress response is efficient and it's not chronically deficient, chronically set in cortisol resistance, which leads to nerve damage. And other things. So, people, a lot of people are living their life fatigued. Um, it might be anemia, it might be other things, but a lot of it is cortisol resistance. Emrys, it's always such a pleasure talking to you, and I always get so much out of our conversations, and I'm sure all of our listeners will get a lot from your expertise as well. And I really appreciate your input. Before we wrap up today, just wondering if there's any final thoughts or messages that you'd uh, like to leave the listeners with. Well, to the clinicians out there, I think it's start. It's it's time to start thinking of the brain when treating the gut, uh, the function of the brain, activating the brain, making sure the brain has adequate nutrients, uh, good blood flow. Exercise is a good component for that. A good uh, intervention for that. Uh, don't just treat the gut, treat the brain. You'll get great results with that alone, without even touching the gut. Uh, but treat holistically. For the patients out there, remember that stress isn't always about having a stressful life. It's about how you respond to your life, whether it be a stressful life or not. Some people are just always stressed. And there's a good reason for that normally. And we've talked about cortisol resistance and adrenaline resistance today. And they're normally the reason why people can't adequately deal with stress because their stress response is not efficient. 
You've got to have clinicians that understand, go to see clinicians that understand how to intervene on these problems. Um, exercise, like I've said, is a really good starting point because it's free. We've talked about all the different ways of dealing with nutrient deficiencies, deficiencies of water as well, you know, toxicity. Uh, start there. And if you're still having problems, then at least you've addressed a lot of the causes already. And whether it be a gut problem, a consistent gut problem, or a consistent stress-related problem, anxiety, depression, and so on, start with that. And then you can start to look at things like vagus nerve stimulation as an intervention. And I do know that when those other things are addressed, vagus nerve stimulation is very very effective and far more likely to resolve the problem of what's left over of the problem if all those things are addressed. So that's my final sort of thought on on how best to deal with stress-related conditions, gut, con- gut conditions, is deal with the basics and then start getting the other interventions to clean up the rest. Yeah, it's such an important message. And I, I agree with what you've said there um, in regard to starting with the basics and then delving a little bit deeper. Uh, you have in the past run workshops and things on vagus nerve stimulation. Are you still running those workshops? If clinicians want to get in contact with you to do some training, is that something that you're thinking about uh, doing again sometime in the future? or? Yeah, so I haven't done one for a while, mainly because of um, COVID. Uh, I have many clinicians who are asking for this course to be run. Uh, The two-day vagal complex course hopefully will be run next year um, if the restrictions have been lifted and people can start travelling and not having to quarantine. So uh, hopefully in around January, February, March, I will run the course and I advertise predominantly through my social media. Um, I don't really do it from my website anymore. So you can follow me, just Emrys, E-M-R-Y-S, Goldsworthy, G-O-L-D-S-W-O-R-T-H-Y on Instagram and Facebook. Instagram is predominantly where I advertise for it, but Facebook as well. Uh, And I'm hoping, yes, hoping next year. Hopefully, uh, no more quarantining. We'll see. But if things don't change, I'll have to do another online version of the course. But it's far better to do it in person. Absolutely. And uh, what I'll do is I'll grab those links and I'll post them in the show notes so that anyone listening who wants to um, do one of your courses can get in contact with you. And you know, I can't recommend Emerus's courses enough. Uh, he's such a wealth of knowledge and He's got the practical hands-on skills and he's got the intellectual know-how so that he can really simplify very complicated and and complex topics and make them very easy to understand. So, Emrys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been wonderful having you here and uh, I hope to have you back again sometime. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.